Chasing Lights Is it possible to completely escape? How much follows you wherever you go? My father once told a story about visiting New York City years after we moved to Alaska. He found himself standing in front of a subway station just as a rush hour mob of people in suits and ties emerged and rushed past him. He stood there as they passed, a man up to his knees in a river facing upstream. He wasn't wearing his hip waders, but by then he was a man from Alaska, able to look up from the New York City streets and laugh. Freedom. One night, when we were deep in the Alaskan interior, my parents dressed up, my father in a suit and tie and my mother in a long dress. Together they walked out to a deck overlooking the lake and lit by sunset. A tall rack of caribou antlers mounted on a pole and a slowly moving windsock on the side of the deck cast shadows on them both as they toasted each other with martinis and danced to Cole Porter playing on a portable cassette player. The city stayed with them. Our last year in Philadelphia was quick. I started first grade and my younger, youngest sister was born right before Valentine's Day. I don't know how everything was settled, how the house was sold, job finished out and all the medical records transferred, but somehow it, it all happened. We packed our world into cardboard boxes for the moving truck. There wasn't a house in Alaska yet, so our stuff was going to be stored until we were ready for it. I imagined then that a moving truck would therefore drive around in circles somewhere in Canada for a couple of months until we were ready. We said goodbye to friends. I remember it was very difficult and awkward to say goodbye to one friend in particular. Her parents, however, were certain that we would come back to Philadelphia again soon. We set out then for Alaska. This time, we weren't on vacation, so there was no sightseeing, no meanderings, just driving north by northwest as fast as we could. A couple of days past Toronto, we arrived in a town called Thunder Bay near the top of Lake Superior. We stopped for gas, and for some reason, once the tank was full, the car wouldn't start. It, it was Saturday, but luckily there was a mechanic at the gas station, and he could look things over while we ate lunch. It was probably just a minor issue, not a real problem. So we ate sandwiches in the camper while we waited for the verdict. The engine block was cracked and had to be replaced. It seemed odd to me that an engine could break, but it did. The earliest we could get a replacement was Monday morning. Therefore, our campground that weekend was a gas station parking lot. Now, I've driven through Thunder Bay a couple of times since then, but I've never stopped, even for gas. I couldn't tell you anything else about the town except that I don't want to be there, ever. My apologies to the good people of Thunder Bay, but it is impossible for me to visit the Fort William Historical Park or the Blue Point Amethyst Mine. I've read that both are worth seeing, but it just isn't doable for me. The mechanic 
quickly installed the engine on Monday morning and we were on our way. The new engine then sounded wonderful, just like the old one. Canada and Alaska, they looked very different this time. It was August. The darkness of night came earlier and there was a bite to the air. The Alcan looked different. Instead of a cloud of dust, rains had turned it into a sea of mud. And even though it may have made the driving a little more harrowing for my dad, the mud meant we had no dust inside the camper. I remember we were stopped once by a road crew somewhere in the Yukon where they were building out a banked curve. There had been so much digging and grading and rain that I wasn't sure which way the road went at that point. Mud stretched all around us as far as I could see. It wasn't a road. It was just an epic field of mud in the middle of nowhere. My father told me one night he was driving late while all of us kids were asleep in the back. At one point he stopped to get out and stretch his legs. Mom joined him outside of the camper on the side of the road for a few moments together. I imagine she had a blanket thrown over her shoulders to keep warm as the air would have been crisp. Fall happens early in the north. There were no other cars around. It was quiet and dark. The lights appeared overhead. Now, instead of the usual blue-green curtains, it became a large red dome over their heads. The sky was transformed. Instead of the side of the road, my parents might as well have been standing in a church, a temple, or a mosque. Buildings designed to transform and connect to something greater than ourselves. Now multiply that wonderful cathedral feeling 10 times or more, and perhaps you'll have an inkling of what it felt like to stand on the road in the middle of the Yukon with a large red dome of light in the sky. I asked my father, why, why did you wake us up? He knew we needed to sleep. Only when I became a father myself did I understand his decision. Three toddlers and a baby, all asleep, is a greater miracle than the Northern Lights ever could be. This trip to Alaska took about two weeks. When we got to Anchorage, it was September. We checked into the Voyager Motel downtown, a two-story building with street-level parking across the way from offices in the courthouse and not far from the Sydney Lawrence Auditorium. There were street-level parking lots everywhere. And from every one of them, I could see the mountains with an early autumn dusting of snow on their peaks. We lived in two hotel rooms connected by a door for about a month. To us, that seemed like a long time. My father started a new job while my mother searched for a new home. I went to school, a small private school nearby called Tom Thumb Elementary. Based on what I experienced there, I think it deserved to be called something like Tom Brown's School Days. The rooms were dark and cold, the teachers were angry, and the other students were all in an intense competition where only the strongest survive. I wasn't the strongest. Now, for some reason, we had to learn how to type. Second grade seemed a little early for that sort of thing, but we had to do it anyway. Down in the basement, we faced a wall of large manual typewriters and were given a page of text to copy. Now, peeking at the keyboard was punished with public shaming, or at the very least, a rap on the back of the hands. The page took forever to copy every day, and I don't think it taught me how to type. 
I also don't remember any actual academics, but it wasn't the right sort of place to learn reading, writing, and arithmetic anyway. But at the end of the day, it wasn't quite as bad as a 19th century British public school. I, I, I didn't have to live there. And, and though it was threatened, I never received corporal punishment. It overwhelmed me with feelings of shame and inadequacy. But I didn't have to stay there very long. Why do we allow schools like that to exist anyway? Do we all hurt so much from childhood that we have to ensure the next generation gets it too? Why does it require a heroic teacher to provide kindness, compassion, and warmth? Why isn't that a basic feature of the system? On my birthday, I woke up to a brand new red bicycle standing in the motel room. It was a Schwinn Typhoon single speed with coaster brakes. It looked fast just standing there. In my heart, it seemed to glow with an inner light. This was a bike for the most sophisticated of seven-year-olds. There wasn't much time before school, though, so my moment of admiration had to be cut short. But that night, when my father came home, he carried the bike downstairs. The two of us then walked it across the street to an empty parking lot lit by streetlights. Learning how to ride a bicycle is one of the more mysterious things that people can learn, along with walking and whistling. Balancing on two wheels isn't reasonable. There's nothing to hold you up. That's why bicycling is about the feeling, where one lets go of fear and rational thinking and discovers balance in the momentum. Every night in that parking lot for a week, my dad ran alongside me until I found the balance and took off on my own. I could hear him panting as he ran behind me and his shouts of encouragement, you're doing it, you're riding. Riding a bike feels more like flying a bike, albeit at a lower altitude. And from the moment I took off from my father's hand and to this day, I fly a bicycle. With a bright red Schwinn Typhoon, everything is a little better. The parking lot was limited in size, and once I learned to ride, I rode in broad circles around the lot. As the excitement started to wear off, I started to think, what? why am I only slightly turning the wheel? What would happen if I made a sharp turn instead? And that question presaged my first bicycle accident as I made a sharp turn and launched over the handlebars entirely. It hurt. I was bruised. But with Dad's encouragement, I got back on the bike, and I didn't get off again for the rest of my life. And a week later, we checked out of the motel and moved to our new home, a split-level four-bedroom house with a yard and a subdivision of neat two-story houses in rows. We moved from the suburbs of Philadelphia to something like the suburbs in Alaska, a change of scenery, but fundamentally part of the same ecosystem we left behind except there were some differences. Now, the 1970s were a time of explosive population growth thanks to the construction of a new oil pipeline that brought crude oil 800 miles from the North Slope, where it was drilled, to Valdez for shipping, as well as sea oil platforms in the Cook Inlet, not far from Anchorage. Quick-built housing for all the workers and their families was essential. Therefore, most parts of town seemed to have at least a few blocks of trailers before they were eventually redeveloped with single-family homes in 10 years or so. And two blocks from our house, 
There were scores of rectangular metal boxes placed at a slight angle to the street. When we traveled the Alcan, we actually saw quite a few of those boxes on the back of trailer trucks covered in plastic and with signs that said, wide load. The single family homes were built quickly, looked alike. As in suburban developments elsewhere, entire neighborhoods were built at one time. There were some holes though, vacant lots peppered every block. Sometimes a block or two would be empty of houses entirely with the street laid out and the road signs in place, but nothing else. Some of the lots were graded and flattened for construction, but many had mounds of dirt, gravel, and peat moss stored for years until it was needed elsewhere. Those mounds of dirt, they were the finest playgrounds around. And then the roads weren't paved, uh, just gravel, just like the Alcan, complete with truck spraying oil to keep the dust down in summer. All of our shoes became caked with tar, and all shoes were banished to the mudroom. Actually, in all houses in Alaska, there, there is a no shoes inside rule. And we all got pretty good at throwing our shoes off when we ran into the house. When they were finally paved years later, I was almost disappointed. You know, gravel is ideal for tearing around on bicycles and leaving skid marks with the coaster brakes. Gravel also let me know when we were almost home. Even if I had fallen asleep in the back of the car, when the sound of wheels on gravel filled my ears. There were also no sidewalks, so the roads were where we spent all of our time when we were kids. In the winter, trucks sprayed dark gravel on top of the snow and ice to give drivers some grip. We always hated when they did that because it ruined the roads for ice skating. And when the conditions were right, maybe once or twice a year, it was possible to even skate to school. Now to do that, of course, would dull the blades, but it was wonderful anyway. Blocks would speed by with only a few gravel patches to slow us down. In Philadelphia, my brother and I shared a bedroom where we slept in a bunk bed. All of our time was spent together, from when we woke up in the morning to when we talked each other to sleep at night. In the Alaska house, we each had our own bedroom, but we never had a chance to discover how much we might miss each other because of an ingenious design feature in the new house. Our bedrooms were next to each other, and between them was a single closet with a door on either side. Those doors were never closed. Instead, we kept an open passage between us where we could keep on talking. We had our own rooms, but we also shared a room. Another feature was a bathroom just for me and my brother. It had a shower stall instead of a tub, something we hadn't seen before. Hot water was scarce. There was just enough to warm up your face and hands while your feet shivered. And because the ambient air was so cold in the morning, steam rose off of our wet legs. We didn't linger, and all through winter my feet and hands were permanently numb with cold. I was moved to a public school in the neighborhood that was far less Dickensian. I loved telling my own daughter, years later, that I actually had to walk more than a mile to school every day. A great and true story to tell, but the walking was less fun than the telling. A mile seems very long to a seven-year-old. A moving truck showed up with all our things, and Halloween was just a couple of weeks later. Instead of making costumes, we picked up some masks at the store. I loved that. A plastic mask. I picked out a skull face that looked particularly scary to me. Then, when it was time to go out and ask neighbors for candy, we put on our snowsuits, snow boots, gloves, hats, and then our Halloween mask. There was a foot of snow outside. 
I was a skeleton in a snowsuit, climbing snowbanks and filling grocery bags with more candy than I'd ever seen. It was different, but to my eyes, it was wonderful. Now, to tell the rest of this story of growing up in Alaska, it's important to know some of the other differences of life in Alaska. Snow, danger, light, dark, guns, the bush, outside world. These are all concepts that will be helpful for me to explain before we go any further. So here's a primer to start with snow days. In Alaska, there are no snow days. If a couple of feet of snow fall, everyone goes to school and everyone gets there on time. Snow is an everyday thing. So taking a day off like schools in the South do was considered silly. Now, one day in 1980, there was a robust two feet of snow that fell overnight, perfect snow. And for some reason, a snow day was called. Everyone was shocked, but we quickly adjusted enough to spend the day playing outside. But parents throughout the city were furious. A new school superintendent recently recruited from a school system down south had unknowingly committed an affront to Alaskan identity and culture by calling a snow day. Snow days did not happen again. The one situation where schools are allowed to alter their schedules is when the temperatures drop well below zero. At that point, there is no outdoor recess and kids walking to school are allowed to come inside before the first bell. We all walked to school every day, even when it was 40 degrees below zero. So it was nice to walk through the door early. Outside. There are three ways Alaskans identify everywhere else. Lower 48, this is probably the most well-known slang for outsiders and is used more often by visitors than locals. Alaska was the 49th state admitted to the United States in 1959. So all the other states are the first 48. Hawaii was the 50th state admitted later that same year. But when someone says lower 48, it sounds a bit too old-timey to be used in regular conversation. It's the sort of thing that evokes an old gold prospector wandering through the wilderness and spitting out some spent chewing tobacco. Of course, there's, there's nothing wrong with the term itself. Many people say the lower 48, but Alaskans tend to use two other phrases more often, like down south. Now, quite often this is used to describe places where foolish people come from places that don't have a lot of snow, have some sort of twang in the local dialect, and where large four-wheel drive vehicles are mistakenly seen as safe to drive quickly on an icy road. They aren't. And then there's outside. Now, this is most commonly used by Alaskans. No other term so clearly encapsulates what it feels like to be Alaskan, even though the meaning is reversed. To live in Alaska is to be outside outside of the mainstream, outside of the continental United States, outside of inhabited time zones, outside of culture, outside of the world. So instead of accepting outsider status, Alaskans flip the coin and call everything else outside. I'm not outside, you are. And yet, we were. There were no bagels or New York Times when we first moved in. I always imagined that delis were magical palaces of hot pastrami, lox, sub sandwiches, and schmears. I didn't taste those foods until I was much older. And even though I love them, 
they never quite lived up to the stories my father would tell. And occasionally a package would arrive by mail with crumpled up pages of the New York Times used to cushion the object for shipping. My mother would carefully smooth out the paper so she and dad could read a two-week-old newspaper. The nightly news with Walter Cronkite was broadcast the next morning over breakfast. Satellite communications came later in the 70s. The only way for Alaskans to see the news was for someone to fly up from Seattle with a recording of the show. That also meant that movies came to us weeks later, giving us time then to read reviews and imagine what they might be like and long for opening night. Then there's danger. The wilderness is not a pastoral fantasy spun by 19th century poets and novelists. It, it quite often wants to kill you. Two or three people are mauled by bears every year. Polar bears will basically eat anything they see, while regular bears will usually leave you alone, usually, usually. Some people have been trampled by moose, especially when they got between a mother and her little ones. And even though they are about the size of a large raccoon, wolverines are unbelievably fierce and unafraid to fight anything, even a bear. The only time I saw a wolverine, it was dead, but its corpse was frightening. An unexpected and welcome bonus to life in Alaska is that there are no poisonous spiders, snakes, or insects. The mosquitoes, however, do cause a lot of misery. There were stories told of grown moose driven mad and running themselves to death to get free of the black clouds of insects. In June, when the swarms are most intense, there is no such thing as a peaceful evening in nature. If even one mosquito manages to get inside the bedroom or tent, sleep is elusive. I'll never forget the high-pitched whine of its wings as it swooped past my ears before mysteriously going silent. Depending on how long it lasted, it could reduce me to screams or frustrated tears or both. And whenever we fell asleep before it was executed, we would wake up to welts all over our faces. Somewhere near the ceiling, a very slow and fat mosquito would hover menacingly. My brother and I, we are reluctant to harm any animals. Fishing was always challenging for us as we gazed down on a freshly caught trout trying to breathe. But mosquitoes? Another matter. It didn't bother us when we smacked them to nothing, especially when they were full of our blood. In the winter, temperatures stayed below zero for weeks at a time. Frostbite and hypothermia were discussed all the time. Windchill, however, was not talked about. Invented in the 1940s to compare how quickly exposed skin would succumb to frostbite if the wind was blowing, it isn't that helpful or accurate a description of how cold it is. Plus, there's some ego involved when it comes to the weather. When Boston or Chicago news reports, uh, they say that they have below zero wind chills. An Alaskan will self-righteously say, but that's not actually below zero. When talking about the weather in Alaska, it's always much more appropriate to quote actual temperatures instead of wind chill. An example might be, yeah, it was 35 below yesterday, and the wind was blowing pretty hard, I guess, too. It is a testament to the twisted human spirit that people in the North feel morally superior when it's colder than the South. And given how miserable it is to be in 40 below zero weather, one needs to find ways to somehow feel good. 
In the summer, cold is also a threat. Falling into a glacial lake can mean hypothermia as the water is near freezing. So many times in a canoe, I looked at the dark water all around me with a thrill of fear. Miles from any meaningful source of heat, any mistake could be fatal. Glaciers are miles and miles of thousand-year-old ice, and when the wind blows, everywhere is instantly air-conditioned, no matter how much the sun is shining. Summer never really gets warm. I didn't own a pair of shorts until I left home. There's a word called the bush. The wilderness in Alaska, that's what we call the bush, a term that, as far as I can tell, was originated by Dutch settlers to describe scrubland in South Africa. It was later adopted to Australia and Alaska, where it describes any place that's not directly connected to the road network. Transportation to and from the bush requires dog sleds, snow machines, boats, or small airplanes fitted with skis or floats for landing gear. To be in the bush is to be off the grid. To be in the bush is to be in Alaska. And you see this a lot there and everywhere in Alaska, guns. Everyone seems to own multiple firearms. Now, when we first moved in, my brother and I would collect spent shell casings we found in vacant lots or alongside the road. And we quickly lost interest in them as it became clear how abundant they were. Most road signs, especially outside of town, were decorated with bullet holes. Everyone has guns. Everyone wants to use them. Eventually, they do. Our job was to stay out of the way. Light. Now, by the beginning of June, there's very little darkness left, to the point that parents just give up on their children going to bed by 9 o'clock. The sun is so bright at 9, it feels like late afternoon. We would play kick the can or baseball or battle games until it got dark, kind of dark, around 11, then rush home covered in dirt and ready to sleep. At solstice, the sun didn't go down at all. There would be some dimmer light around midnight, then it would just start to get brighter. Very little sleeping happened, but it just didn't seem necessary. We weren't tired. I felt truly awake. The air was sharp and clear. Colors were dusty blue, and everything seemed to hum with energy. It was fortunate we didn't have school during the solstice. Very little learning could happen with everyone hopped up on sunshine. But then there's darkness. Winter felt endless, partly because it was. The darkness made it longer. I woke up in the dark, went to school in the dark, and came home in the dark. Six hours of daylight just wasn't enough. January felt twice as long as June, and all the energy collected in the summer solstice dissipated quickly while I stared out black windows day after day. Daylight happened while I was at school. I missed most of it. It was a lot of dark. No one noticed the depression because everyone felt it. It was normal. Freedom isn't easy. And nor is winter. <laughs>